0: Up to this point in his letter to the Galatian churches, Paul has been making the case that we are saved by faith alone, not by doing any good works. Specifically, not by following the Jewish set of rules, rituals, and regulations known as the Law of Moses, or the law. Paul was doing this to confront the teaching of the Judaizers, a group of Jews who had infiltrated the churches in the region of Galatia in Paul's absence, and were teaching that in order to be a Christian, you needed to have faith in Jesus, but also follow the law. Paul has been arguing in a calculated manner so far in his letter. He's been laying out really an irrefutable, inarguable case that even built on Abraham and the Old Testament that the Judaizers were so fond of. But now Paul's going to dramatically change gears and he's going to start getting very personal with the Galatians. He's going to remind them of their past relationship, their shared relationship, how they met, how the Lord worked among them to bring them together. Paul's going to do everything he can to convey his heart to the Galatian believers. Simply put, he loves them dearly. He would lay down his life for them in a heartbeat, and he has, and he wants to make sure that that fact doesn't get lost in the tension of what's been a very confrontational letter thus far. Paul knew what real love was the only way that any of us can know what real love is, and that's by experiencing it for ourselves. And Paul had experienced the love of the Lord. He had been loved by the Lord Jesus, and so Paul understood what it meant to go live your life trying to show that same love to other people. And his approach here that he's going to take in the text we're gonna study today is a great reminder for us of what Paul wrote about in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter of the Bible. If you've read it, then you'll recall that part of his statement in that chapter is that if we have all the knowledge in the world, the best theology, the best doctrine, the best arguments, irrefutable, but we don't have love then we have nothing, nothing. We're just noise. If Paul had ended this letter after laying out the perfect academic and theological arguments for salvation by faith, if he had ended this letter content that he had won the argument and put the Galatians in their place, it would have accomplished nothing. Everything in Paul's argument would still be true But it would have fallen on deaf ears because the old saying is true that most of the time people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so Paul takes some time now to remind the Galatians how much he cares about them and how much they used to care for him. It's a tactic that I hope we've all experienced in our own lives. I mean, maybe you've been in this situation or or maybe you know of someone who has. You're in the middle of a heated argument or or disagreement or conversation, if calling it that makes you feel better. You're going back and forth, point for point, blow for blow, and you're at that point where any trace of love or compassion has completely left the room. Again, this is an analogy for our online listeners, not for you guys, I know you've never been in this situation, And, and then one person says something along the lines of, listen, listen, I love you, And I hate arguing like this. And I never want to do anything to hurt you. I'd never do that intentionally. I just want to fix this. And all of a sudden you have that moment where the the anger and the bitterness just begins to evaporate as one person willingly humbles themselves. It's like the Holy Spirit gets invited back into the conversation. I don't know if you've had that moment, you realize, oh, he wasn't actually participating up to this point, and we just invited him back in, and love begins to go to work on the issue, and everything changes. That's what Paul is doing here. Just as his readers were likely hardening their hearts against his argument thus far, he switches tactics, and he reminds them that he's coming from a place of love, and he's only concerned for their well-being which is a good thing for us to remember in all of our heated conversations. Reminding the other party that you love them and you care about them in the middle of conflict goes a long way, goes a long way. And it lowers that bitterness that just loves to naturally creep up in our flesh. Proverbs 15.1 puts it like this, it's on your outlines. A soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's a good word for parenting, for marriage, for work relationships, everything. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The Christian model for confrontation is the Christian model for everything. It's Jesus, who the Bible tells us came full of grace and truth. So love tells the truth. But love wraps the truth in grace. It's a great sandwich with truth in the middle. And that's what we're going to see Paul do in our study today. Let's jump in uh, Galatians chapter 4 verse 12. We read this. Paul says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became... Like you, So when Paul says, become like me, he's referring to the freedom that he enjoys as a follower of Jesus. And when he says, for I became like you, he's referring to the fact that he, a former super Jew, you might remember, he came and ministered to them in Galatia as though he were a Gentile. He didn't shun them because they weren't Jewish. He didn't demand kosher food or refuse to eat with them or anything like that. He says, I I became like you. I operated in the freedom of Jesus so that I could come and minister to you. And so I'm urging you, become like me again. Be free in Jesus. And he says, if, if I hadn't been doing that, I never would have been able to come and minister to you. You never would have even heard the gospel. And then he says, you've not injured me at all. What he's trying to convey is that he's not offended that they've started following someone else's teaching rather than his. He's not worried about his reputation or his ego. He's not holding a grudge or unforgiveness toward them. He's not taking it personally. His only concern is their well-being and that they would place their faith in the truth rather than a lie that cannot save. And Paul showed his character in this area in his letter to the Philippians when he wrote that while he was aware that there were some in the region who were teaching the gospel from impure motives, he said, listen, I just rejoice that there are people preaching the gospel. Even if their motives are wrong, as long as the gospel they're preaching is the true gospel, praise God for that. That's good news. So we can trust that Paul didn't have ulterior motives. He wasn't on an ego trip. He just wanted to make sure the truth was out there. And I think that if we're honest, our human nature also tells us we can trust Paul's motivations, not just because he's an apostle, but because if any of us were in that situation, I think our flesh would make us want to say to these Galatians, You know, I endured beatings so I could be with you. I preached the gospel and held Bible studies when I should have been in bed recovering. I've poured countless hours into you. I've answered all of your emails. I've given my heart and soul in ministry to you. And now you want to turn away and stab me in the back and start following the Judaizers? I'm done. Forget you guys. When we're all standing before Jesus, we'll find out who was right. Spoiler alert, it's me. I think that's what we would want to do. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know I would if I'm being honest. But that's not what we find Paul doing. We find him engaging with the Galatians, confronting the Galatians, doing everything he can to lovingly correct the Galatians. And that's not the easy way out. We know this. Confrontation is never the easy way out. It's just the opposite. It's the hard work of real love. The easy way out is saying quitting is quitting and saying, Man, forget you guys. I guess the Lord has spoken. The fact that you're turning away from the truth, well, the Lord is leading, so I'm not going to stand in the way of that. That's the easy way out. But make a note of this. Love is more concerned with what is right than who is right. Love is more concerned with what is right than who is right. Love is more concerned with what is right than who is right. And then in verse 13, he says, You know that because of physical infirmity, I preach the gospel to you at the first. And what historians tell us is being suggested is that when Paul first came to a Galatian city, it was likely not planned. It was out of necessity. He was on a journey to somewhere else in the region and he had to divert to a Galatian city because he was having a medical issue that was getting so severe, they needed to treat it and get medical supplies and find a place for him to recuperate. They needed to find a city to treat Paul and the closest one at that point in the journey was a Galatian city. Verse 15 is gonna give us a strong clue that one of Paul's physical ailments, the main one, had something to do with his eyes. And historians say that whatever condition it was, it likely made both his eyes look like they had permanent pink eye. They would have been constantly oozing and running and it would cause him to have to write with large letters because his vision was blurred and clouded, a fact that Paul is gonna refer to in Galatians 6.11 later on. But here's what we should notice. God had a plan to use Paul's illness to spread the gospel. And Paul was always looking for an opportunity to spread the gospel. And so when you put those two forces together, some very effective ministry ended up taking place. And I'm challenged by Paul's attitude in Galatia, and I think you should be too, because when my life plans go awry, when I have to change course and divert to a place or situation that I had no intention of ever being in in my life, how do I react? Do I throw a pity party? Do I sulk? Do I become depressed? Do I accuse God of abandoning me? Is the truth that I'm so focused in those situations on myself and my own comfort and my own hardship that anyone else is the last thing on my mind? Or am I like Paul who said, well, this illness sucks. I didn't plan on being here or doing this, but I am. And if this is where I am right now, then I know God has something good to do in all of this where I am right now. So I'm gonna be on the lookout for ministry opportunities that the Lord is gonna send my way. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about his famous thorn in the flesh, as he calls it. It was some great and painful thing in Paul's life that he had asked God to remove multiple times, but instead of removing it, God speaks to Paul and tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul's perspective changed and he realized that this thing in his life was keeping him humble and forcing him to rely on God to empower his ministry, rather than his own knowledge or skill and the result was actually a more effective and more powerful ministry because the more you can rely on God the more effective you're going to be when things in our lives take a sharp turn to somewhere we didn't expect or didn't want to go here's what we can know god has a plan to do something good through it that's the promise of romans 8:28 but we can miss out on the blessings that God wants to give us in that trial if we're only focused on ourselves. Because you can only ever be looking at one thing at a time in life, and if you're looking at yourself, occupying your vision with yourself, then you're not looking at God. The solution is to lift our eyes, to lift our focus to the Lord and say, what do you wanna do in this, Lord? What do you wanna do in me in this? And when we do that, we find ourselves in that strange and yet glorious place where we can say with honesty, this is a difficult time. This is a brutal season. But at the same time, God's doing something. He's doing something in me. I'm not not even sure what it is yet, but I know it's good and I know he's doing something. Don't miss out on the blessings that God has for you in your trials because you're so focused on yourself and on the fact that you're in a situation you didn't want to be in don't miss out on the fact that God is still moving in that situation be like Paul listen for God's answer and be open to what God might want to do through you even in the midst of your trial what God ended up doing through Paul's unwanted diversion into Galatia was so far beyond Paul's wildest hopes or dreams He was probably hoping to have one good gospel conversation with someone while he's there. He ends up starting a movement of churches in the region, leading masses of people to Jesus over the coming years. Would you write this down? Because God works good in all things, the believers' unwanted detours become divine appointments. The believers' unwanted detours become divine appointments. And so I would just encourage you, honestly, heart to heart, if you're in a detour place in life right now, in any area of your life where things haven't gone according to plan, would you take some comfort in the fact that God has an appointment for you in that place? He has something he wants to do in you, through you, and for you in that place. Don't miss out on what the Lord wants to do because you're too busy focusing on the fact that you don't think you're supposed to be there. Don't miss out. Verse 14, he says, And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. When Paul showed up in Galatia, he was not pretty to look at. In fact, he was hard to look at. He bore the kinds of marks and scars and wounds on his body from beatings that would make someone want to look away. And then he had this eye issue, which would have made you go, Ew. And Paul's issue had repulsive symptoms, and in most ancient cultures at this time, that sort of thing was considered an indication of some sort of divine judgment from the gods. This is why at that one time the disciples asked Jesus, you might remember, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because it was held among the Jews and among many ancient cultures. If you had some sort of physical issue, it was God's judgment upon you. But these Galatians, they still listened to Paul's message. They still opened their hearts and ears to him. And as they heard him preach the gospel, they responded to the gospel and gave their lives to the Lord. And because they were so grateful for their salvation, They just loved on Paul and treated him with such great gratitude as though he was an angel sent from God or Jesus himself visiting with them. And I don't mean that in the idolatrous sense. They didn't worship Paul. They just showed Paul the same level of hospitality they would have shown an angel or Jesus because they understood that Paul was representing Jesus. Again, from a human perspective, Paul's incursion into Galatia seemed like it was entirely driven by circumstance and necessity and misfortune. But in reality, God had something great to do through all of that. Verse 15, he says, what then was the blessing that you enjoyed? He's saying, remember how overjoyed you were to receive the gospel? What happened to that joy? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That's how grateful they were to Paul. That's how much love and affection they felt toward him back then. That's how gladly they had received the gospel. Verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You loved me when I shared with you the truth of the gospel. Do you now view me as an enemy because once again I'm telling you the truth? In the book of Proverbs, it tells us the truth. It's on your outline when it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And so it's worth thinking about every now and then. Who in your life is allowed to tell you the truth? Who will you listen to? Whose words will you sincerely consider and give ear to, even when they're not what you want to hear? For far too many people, the answer is is nobody. They have people they listen to because right now they agree with them. But if someone were to say, hey, you're completely off base on this one issue, is there anyone in your life who could tell you that and you would listen to them sincerely? That's an important, important question. We all need to have some of those people in our lives. We live in a culture that no longer understands that it's possible to love someone but disagree with some of their choices. Our culture increasingly believes that if you love someone, then you have to agree with all their decisions and approve of all their choices. But don't miss that Proverbs 27.6 clearly implies that a good friend may wound you. Did you catch that? That's clearly implied, they may wound you. Then it goes further and points out that not only may a good friend wound you, but those wounds would be faithful. In other words, they would hurt for a good reason because a true friend cares about what is best for you, not what is easiest for them. There's nothing easy about confrontation. It's much easier to be the friend who offers unconditional approval of every decision, support of every choice they make, But when you know that that decision will lead to something bad, if you're a real friend, you're going to tell them. You're going to say something. You're not going to say, well, you know, let them drive off a cliff, but at least when they're in the hospital, they won't be mad at me. If you're a real friend, you're not going to let them drive off the cliff. And if you've ever been that kind of friend to someone, the kind who tells the truth, then you might have received a negative reaction. And wanted to say what Paul says here in verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth? Make a note of this. Love tells the truth even at the risk of being viewed as an enemy. Love tells the truth even at the risk of being viewed as an enemy. And in those situations, it's just me being honest with you in my life when I'm trying to figure out what, what should I do, the question I always go back to is, how am I going to be able to stand before the Lord and have clean hands in this situation? That's my tiebreaker when I can't figure out, should I talk to this person? Should I could confront him? Should we have this conversation? I imagine myself genuinely standing before Jesus and saying, am I going to be able to with a clear conscience tell Jesus I did everything I could to try and do what was right here? I wasn't concerned about how it would affect me. I just tried to do the right thing the right way. That's a good question to ask. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul reveals an important truth, the truth that we can grieve the heart of God. This is on your outlines. Paul wrote, do not grieve, would you underline, grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Many times in scripture, we find God grieving over his chosen people, the Jews, and their refusal to listen to him, obey him, or walk in his ways, instead making choices that would inevitably lead to their ruin. You might recall after his triumphant procession through Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. God gave everything he could to Israel, everything he could, including his only begotten son, but they wouldn't listen, and it grieved the heart of God deeply. It didn't anger him, it grieved him deeply. And here's what we take from that. Write this down. Love is grieved When someone chooses a path that leads to destruction, love is grieved, it hurts your heart if you have love for someone and they choose a path that you know is gonna lead to destruction. Destruction in their relationships, in their life, whatever it may be. And let me say this, if you're not grieved by someone's sin, then you're probably not the person to confront it. It's not the same as being mad. You can't just be mad and confront their sin. You can't just judge and say, that's wrong and confront the sin. You have to love that person enough to be grieved by it because you don't want to see something bad happen to them. And that's your motivation, love for them stepping in to deal with it. Love is grieved when someone chooses a path that leads to destruction because love doesn't want to see them get hurt. A couple more things that love does. God didn't just point out our sin. He didn't just... Give us the law to reveal our brokenness and then leave it at that. What did God do? He sent Jesus who gave his life in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. And here's what we take from that example. Write this down. Love is willing to lay down its life for the person it rebukes. Love is willing to lay down its life for the person it rebukes. If you're going to call out sin or confront someone, a believer, who's believing something wrong, living in a wrong way. Be prepared to love them in a practical way. You know, you need to start going to church. Haven't been seeing you around. You need to go to church, it's important. Man, I, I don't have transportation. Can you, can you give me a ride every Sunday? I don't know, it's kinda out of my way. Um, probably not the person to confront that sin. The solution is not got the message, Jeff. Never confront anyone about anything ever. I've written it down. I got it. That's not the point. The point is be the kind of person who loves other people enough that you can confront them because you're loving them to back up that confrontation. It's the same idea as when Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye first before you deal with the splinter in another person's eye. The point is not don't ever confront sin. The point is deal with sin in your own life so that you can have integrity when you deal with it in somebody else's life. Grow in love, that's the point. We cannot be willing to confront, but unwilling to help. Yes, sin is still sin, whether you can help or not, but people are also people, and here's the truth. If we're not willing to help, they're gonna pick up on that, and it's gonna make it harder for them to receive that message. It's gonna make it harder for them to receive it. In Hosea, we read this, it's on your outlines. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, and then underline, receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. The implication being that if they would return to the Lord, he would obviously receive them graciously. So write this down as well. Love Graciously welcomes repentance. Love graciously welcomes repentance. Love is ready to move on as soon as there's repentance. Love doesn't look back. Love doesn't treat the returning repentant sinner like a second class citizen. Love graciously welcomes repentance. That's the way the Lord has loved and loved throughout all of the scriptures. Then in verse 17, Paul says, they, the Judaizers, zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. Underline the word them. Paul says, the Judaizers are going after you guys hard. Man, they're trying to win you over, but not with good intentions. They want to exclude you from the freedom of the gospel the freedom of the gospel message that I preach to you. Why would they want to do that? Well, Paul's sharing some profound insight here. We've talked before about how the Judaizers were pushing their Jesus and the gospel. They were teaching you needed Jesus and the law in order to be truly saved. And the reason this kind of message works is because, as we've talked about throughout this series, there's something in each of us that is just drawn to the idea that we can be our own savior, through good works and being a good person, we can earn our way to heaven ourselves. And in addition to feeling elite, I think the reason that we're drawn to this message is because for all intents and purposes, it allows us to continue being the God of our own life, doesn't it? I mean, if we don't really need Jesus to save us, then we can kind of stay on the throne of our own lives. And so our ears and hearts and egos are pricked when someone says, If you want to be serious about your spirituality, I mean, if you want to be one of the elite, then join us and do what the real disciples of Jesus do. The focus of that whole philosophy is not Jesus. Who is it? It's me. It's me. And guess what? I am always on my mind. I love me some me. And so I'm all about that sort of philosophy. My flesh just loves it. It's like, you know, there's something in what you're saying that just, oh, it resonates with me. I know what it is. It's me. I resonate with me. That's exactly what's going on. I am, I'm fascinated by World War II, and, and I don't say that to make light of it like it's a fun hobby or something, but I am, I'm fascinated by it because the number of storylines and subplots and battles and politics and layers are if you've ever looked into it they're just infinite infinite but the part of World War II that intrigues me the most is is really dark it's the question what made ordinary men and women in Germany change their values and behaviors So rapidly that in the span of just a few years, they went from living with certain people as neighbors to leaning on a fence, watching with approval as they were slaughtered and dumped into mass graves. How is that possible? I'm fascinated by that question and it's, it's played out tragically in places all over the world. People who are neighbors one day murdering each other the next on a mass scale. I'm a firm believer that that history is not taught correctly in the school system. The part of history that matters is the lessons of history. It's been well said, famously said by George Santayana that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so we teach our children and young people the events and the dates of history but we do not teach them the lessons of history. We refuse as a people to use history as a mirror because it reveals the inherent evil that runs through the heart of every man and woman and could be activated in an instant should the right circumstances coalesce. And because we refuse to do that, because we're unwilling to see the ugliness that history reveals about us, history repeats itself century after century, after century. And over the years, as I looked into this issue in Nazi Germany, the question of how evil can rise up and flourish in ordinary people, I think I've come to a shockingly simple conclusion. And and it's just this, that everyone loves to hear the message that they are somehow special in a way that other people are not. Everyone loves to hear that message. And when you buy into that message, it doesn't take very long for you to use your newly discovered special status as a justification to abuse those who do not share your special status. Especially when you add in dynamics like a mob mentality as you begin to get together and socialize with other people who share this special status and begin ceasing socializing with those who do not. And if there's enough momentum behind this dynamic, it leads all the way to genocide, even to a holocaust. Now please understand, what I'm about to say next is not intended to equate the things that I'm about to talk about with the Third Reich. That's not the parallel that I'm trying to draw. What I'm trying to draw here is the parallel that the same dynamic is in play. An elitism that if fully bought into leads to a psychopathic almost callousness in the heart of a person. Here's a good illustration. So Jesus on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you've ever hated a person in your heart, that's as bad as murder. And if you were just reading that, you'd go, "Whoa, Jesus, are you equating Having a moment of hate towards someone with murder? And the answer is for Jesus, well, well, yeah, in the sense that they come from the same place. So what I'm about to talk about here is that. It's saying that these things come from the same place, even though they take different forms. We saw this same dynamic at work in the Pharisees of Jesus' day, if you think about it. They were so callous toward people, no heart for people, no care, no love, And it disgusted Jesus. And how did it happen? It happened because they saw themselves as elite. They created a class of elite special people that held to the law at a certain standard. And it allowed them to view everyone else as less than them. And the result was this callousness in their heart that when it took hold manifested in things like taking the sacred temple of God and turning it into a place to extort money from worshipers. They all had mistresses on the side, all indulging in sin and corruption and thievery because this callousness took a hold of them that resulted from this elitism that they bought into. You ready for my controversial statement of the day? Most likely to be edited out of the message before it goes online. It's this part right here. The same dynamic is at work today, even in Calvinism. Calvinism, and I'll tell you why. Why? Because Calvinists will tell you, I'm being very blunt here, but nothing a Calvinist would disagree with. Calvinism says, hey, God has predestined most of the people in the world for eternal damnation. And when I say predestined, like he made them for the purpose of going to hell. They were born with no chance to be saved. No matter what they did, they could never be saved. He made them for the express purpose of sending them to hell. And not only that, but every person who experiences evil or abuse or anything like that in the world, that was the will of God and he made them specifically so that they could experience that. That's what Calvinism says. And we hear that and we say, there is no way, there is no way that the character of God revealed in scripture lines up with what you're saying there. There's no way. How can you read the Bible, read about the love of God, and say that God is like that? It just doesn't line up. So how in the world do people buy into that? It's simple. They believe they're part of the elect. They're part of the elect. And so if you're part of this elect, special chosen group, if you're one of the ones that God chose to save, then awesome. And if you're not, then, well, it kind of sucks to be you, but You know, it is what it is. What can I do? I'm part of the special chosen group. Nothing I can do for you. And the same dynamic is at work when I falsely believe that I'm part of an elite group because I'm somehow more special than other people. Why did God save me? Well, you know, I I just try a little harder than most. Well, you know, I've always been a pretty good person. I've always tried to do the right thing. And I think God just saw that and he reached out to me. The second I begin buying into the idea that I'm somehow saved because I'm, I'm a little bit better or I tried a little bit harder than other people, I was a little more open, it does not take long for callousness to begin grabbing a hold of my heart and for me to become callous towards those who are not part of the group. It doesn't take long. I'm not accusing every Calvinist of being callous, but I'm saying that the doctrine of Calvinism is itself callous, and therefore inevitably breeds callousness in the hearts of men. And I know you're thinking, Jeff, this this is one of your greatest bunny trails of all time. I mean, it's been so much fun, but what does this have to do with Galatians? I'm so glad you asked. Because the same dynamic was at work in Galatia through the message of the Judaizers. It was a message that appealed to their flesh and told people, you can be part of the elite, the serious, real, authentic followers of God, the hardcore believers who will pay the price under the law. Most people, people, they just can't handle this level of spirituality. But you can. You can, you Galatians. This is what Paul means when he says that They were courting them hard. They were going after them hard, zealously with this appeal. And they were buying into this message, the Galatians. And as they did, their hearts were becoming callous. And we see that in the way that they were treating Paul. They were distancing themselves from Paul. They were shunning him. They were listening to slanderous accusations against him without refuting them. This person that they once would have given their very lives for. How was this happening? How were they changing so quickly? Because callousness was grabbing a hold of their heart because they were buying into this idea that they were somehow elite. To all of this, to the fleshly dynamic of elitism, to the message of the Judaizers, Paul says, listen, all of this creates the appearance of being zealous about spiritual things. But let me tell you what's really behind it. What's really behind it is men who want you to be zealous for them. That's why I had you underline the word them. Paul says, what's behind all of this are men who want you to be zealous for them. The Jesus and gospel is pushed by people who want to have power and control over other people. That's what Paul is telling us explicitly here, and I believe he's right. I also believe that men can lead these kinds of Jesus and movements without even realizing that they're being driven by their own pride and ego. In other words, I don't think that everyone who teaches a Jesus and gospel is is scheming in a back room and trying to conjure up Satan in some black magic ceremony for guidance. I just think that they've given into their pride and their ego and their desire to be elite in some way, and they wanna gain devoted followers, disciples for themselves. It's just another working of what the word says, that the heart is deceitful above all things, And desperately wicked. Christian, please understand this. Our brother Paul is telling us that behind the Jesus and gospel is pride and ego, whether men realize it or not. So don't get caught up in it. Don't get caught up in it. It's Jesus, Jesus, and then some more Jesus. It's Jesus who saves, it's Jesus who sustains, and it's Jesus who will finish the work that he started in us. Nothing else is needed. Easiest recipe in the world. One ingredient, Jesus, okay? So would you make a note of this? The driving force behind the Jesus and gospel is man's pride and ego. It's man's pride and ego. We love the idea of being elite and we love gaining followers and disciples for ourselves. Verse 18, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing, always. And not only when I'm present with you. So he's saying zeal is a good thing when it's directed toward a good thing. But the law is not a good thing to be zealous for. Be zealous for the Lord. Be zealous about enjoying Him and worshiping Him and abiding in Him and growing in your knowledge of Him. Be zealous for that. And now Paul addresses the Galatians as a concerned mother, a wayward child, a far cry from the lawyer before a skeptical jury that Paul has been playing in the preceding chapters. Verse 19, he says, "'My little children, for whom I labor in birth again "'until Christ is formed in you.'" Here's what's going on. The Galatians had received salvation, they'd been born again, but by going back under the law, they were acting like they needed to be born again, again. And for Paul, this was like asking him to give birth to them again. Which is why he says here, this is not natural. This is abnormal. This is not the way that it should be. You're already free in Jesus. There's nothing else you need to do. But he also adds, I'm not giving up on you until Christ is formed in you. I'm not gonna quit on you until you begin to get it and begin to actually live in the new life that Jesus has given you. He says, unlike the Judaizers, I don't want you to be dependent on me. I want you to be dependent on Jesus. Just as a mother in childbirth can't rest for a moment until the child is born, Paul was not going to stop or quit on the Galatians till they reached a healthy and stable place of faith. Last fill in, write this down. Love doesn't give up easily. Love doesn't give up easily. If someone you know and care about is walking in rebellion right now or walking away from the Lord, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep praying, keep loving, keep speaking the truth with grace. Do not give up. And then in verse 20, Paul says, I'd like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. This is just Paul expressing his frustration over the inadequacy of a written letter compared to a face-to-face conversation. He's saying, I wish you could hear the tone of my voice I wish you could see my facial expressions as I share these things because if you could, you would understand how much love there is behind all of these things that I'm sharing with you. He didn't want them to just hear the criticisms of this letter, he wanted them to understand his affection for them because for reasons we don't know, Paul wasn't able to visit with them at this time. And when he says, I have doubts about you, the original language tells us that he's really saying there, he's saying, I'm I'm perplexed, guys. I'm at my wits end. I don't understand how you could receive the gospel so enthusiastically and then walk away from it so easily. And I take heart from that because even the apostle Paul experienced that kind of discouragement. Maybe you've seen someone in your life come to know the Lord or, or move in that direction very aggressively and then just all of a sudden they, they give up and reverse course. You're thinking, man, what did I do What did I do wrong? What did I fail to do? And I would just encourage you, listen, even the Apostle Paul, he experienced that with almost entire churches that he had planted. And when I look at Paul, my first thought is not, oh, I mean, maybe his teaching was a little weak. It's not what I'm thinking. I don't think it was in any way. It's just that this is what people sometimes do and what we need to do in these situations is not give up on them. Keep praying for them. Don't give up until they're fully formed in Christ. Keep praying. Keep holding on. Keep standing the gap in faith. And hopefully today we found some encouragement from our brother Paul and his example. I'm going to be a little shorter today and I'm just going to wrap up by, uh, by challenging us again to think about how we do when our life takes a detour and we end up in a destination other than we planned on whether it's a literal destination or a circumstance that we had no intention of being in, how do we look at that? Do we become so inwardly focused that we miss out on the blessings of God? We miss out on what he wants to do in that situation? Or do we say, okay, this was not the plan, but if I'm here, then God is here too, and he's always doing good, which means he's got something to do here. In me, through me, for me. God's got good that he wants to do. So Lord, what do you want to do? Which way do we respond right now? If if you're in a place you didn't plan on being in, how are you responding right now? And we need to receive the grace of God. We need to receive the grace of God in that circumstance. When Paul was in anguish and praying about this thorn in the flesh, God's response to him was, My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, St. Paul, this circumstance isn't going to change right now, but I do have grace for you. And in that was the Lord saying to Paul, So receive my grace, and you'll find that you have all that you need. So if that's you today, you're in a situation, and God hasn't answered your prayer yet with a yes, pray for his grace. Receive it by faith and thank Him that it's enough for whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing right now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you never leave us under equipped or ill equipped, but you make available to us everything we need for every circumstance of life if we will receive it. Just as, Lord, your work on the cross paid for every sin so that we could have forgiveness if we would choose to receive it. Lord, you have grace available for us, more than enough, all that we need. So Father, if if we're in a place that we didn't plan on being in, a situation, a circumstance we didn't desire to be in, Father, would you help us right now to take our eyes off of ourselves and to lift our gaze to you and to instead begin to say, Lord, what do you wanna do here? We know enough about you to know that it's good because you're only ever good. Only ever good. So we know you want to do good. So help us to walk in agreement with you on that. To be open to hear what you want to do in us, through us, and for us where we are right now. Father, help us to receive your grace, to take it in. in Jesus' name, even right now, Lord. We just receive your grace. We thank you for it. We thank you that it is enough for every situation and every circumstance, Lord. We thank you for fresh grace this evening. And then, Lord, we ask you for your heart, which we see in our brother Paul, for the lost and for those who are walking in rebellion against you right now. We don't see any trace of an attitude of good riddance in Paul. We just see your heart, the same heart that wept over those who would not turn to you. That is grieved by those who choose the path of destruction rather than the path that leads to life. Father, where we've been angry or judgmental, Father, would you replace it with a grief that matches your heart that is rooted in love and in the compassion that you feel for them, the compassion that was so extreme that you died for them, God, laying down your life. So Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus, where there may be anger or bitterness or resentment, which you replace it with a brokenheartedness for the lost and those who are walking away from you. A brokenheartedness that would drive us to pray with love and with a sincere desire for their good, which is you, which is you, Jesus. And Lord, we ask for perseverance. Help us to not give up. Help us to keep praying. Help us to keep asking. Help us to keep knocking. Because we know that if we do, the door will be opened, Lord. Help us to not give up. We love you, God.